Imagine, demand and build a world transformed. Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to the UK book launch of Sarjafi's Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exposed, Exhausted and Alone. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm a writer and a radio producer, and I work with Commonwealth. Um, we, Commonwealth, are one of the co-hosts of the event today with The World Transformed. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming to this, and thank you to The World Transformed for um, helping to put this together and running tech on this. It's much appreciated. Um, today we have Sarah Jaffe, uh, who's on screen now. Uh, we also have two speakers. We have Dahlia Gabriel, who's a doctoral researcher at the London School of Economics, um, an associate researcher at Autonomy, and a contributing editor to Novara. Um, they are also the co-author of the forthcoming Empire Endgame, Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State, which is out in February from Pluto Books. Um, and we also have Amelia Horgan, um, who I work alongside at Commonwealth, who is a doctoral researcher at the University of Essex um, and the author of the forthcoming um, Pluto Press, Lost in Work, Ending Capitalism, uh, which is also going to be very good. So we have a discussion today about um, work and workplace democracy and um, this excellent new book, which is out um, this week, if I'm not mistaken, um, from Sarah. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to, uh, yeah, there it is. I'm really happy to be able to, um, to uh, launch this uh, with Sarah. I, I first met you, Sarah, at uh, the Blue Post, I think, um, when uh, you were in town researching for this book and doing interviews um, in London. Um, it's a shame that this can't be in person, but sadly, this is all we get. We have a little virtual event. Um, so I'm glad to have everybody Skyping in. Um, I'm basically what we're going to do for this is um, Sarah's going to intro the book a little bit and then we're going to have Q&A with Dahlia and then a Q&A between Dahlia and, and Sarah and then a Q&A between Amelia and Sarah and then at the end we have about 10-15 minutes for questions um, so if people want to throw in questions into the chat um, please do that they will be taken up at the end um, and yeah I guess the last thing I'll just say is, is Sarah's uh, an excellent labor reporter um, she's also the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Um, and this is the second book. It's out on Hearst uh, and it's well worth um, buying if you guys want to do that. Um, Sarah, you can, you can go for it. Hi. Um, thank you all so much for being here. I'm trapped back in America where I guess we have a new president. Um, although, you know, things might be on fire in Washington while we're having this call again. I don't really know. I miss being in the UK. I miss all of these beautiful people. I was telling Josh before we went live that I was going to cry. Um, so I'm going to try not to do that. Let me know if my eyeliner is running. Um, I first started thinking about this book, this book on the idea of loving your job and why that is a scam. I mean, I think I probably first started thinking about it when I first had a job um, because my first job was cleaning up trash at an outdoor concert hall. And that was supposed to be real exciting for me when I was 14. But I've been chewing on the idea of the 
sort of development and the shift in this idea that we should love our work. Because it's actually, you know, now we hear these conversations when you say that work isn't actually all that fulfilling. People act like you have said that, you know, the sky is green. Yet it's actually not that long that we've been expected to love our jobs or at least to perform loving our jobs. And so I wanted to talk about what's changed about capitalism to get us to this point where we, most of us, most people on this call probably have a job in which you are required to put some emotional effort into being there. Um, I don't know if anybody still works on an assembly line, but there's a big difference between the jobs that have the jobs that have gone away, right? The, the factory jobs, the coal mining jobs, those, the period of industrial labor that has mostly been shipped away at now, and the jobs that have filled in the gaps, which are mostly low wage service jobs, despite what we've been told about the fancy, exciting knowledge economy. And even those knowledge economy jobs demand an emotional involvement from us that would have been unheard of to most people not all that long ago. So, in the book, I go through the stories of 10 different workers across four or five different countries that have been organizing on the job. So it's both a case study of that particular person's type of work, whether that be paid domestic work, nonprofit or charity work, video game programming, or art or sports, and a story of how they fought to change that work. And in between the stories, I said in a whole lot of history of the way that this work has been shaped and changed over time. And the reason that I, though I am not a trained historian at all, um, feel so insistent on talking about the history of work is to remind us all that it has been different in the past and it can be different again in the future. And yeah, the last thing I'll say about the book is I sort of divided it into two sections. One is based, is work that is based in the unpaid work that women are supposed to do in the home for free. And the second half is based in the narrative around art and creative work. And from those two stories, I watch the way that this narrative, these narratives have wended their way through all different types of work that we're expected to do now. Um, so I'm tired of talking about my book already, but I've got quite a lot more of it to do. So I'm going to let somebody ask me questions so I can stop rambling. Yeah, great. Um, let's go to uh, Dahlia to ask a little bit of a little Q&A section. Yeah, hi. Um, hi, everyone. I'm so, so thrilled to be uh, just like involved and you know here to talk to you, Sarah because you are oh, you are like you know one of one of the most incredible reporters on labor and work out there and especially at a time when uh a lot of labor i mean labor journalism as a as a trade is kind of not as much of a thing anymore and the people who do try and report on work and trade unions do a terrible job of it so um it's really exciting to have um to have you here now um, and for us to have this conversation. Um, so my first question was um, kind of, I guess, like a some something of a strategy question, but also kind of raising, I think, some of the the core issues that you just mentioned about, like the knowledge economy and the kind of added layers of like emotional and and uh, of emotional work that doesn't get compensated. Um, 
so in my work where I mainly interview app-based workers, I found that when speaking to workers, I definitely had this really like this this found this this real attachment to this idea of being an entrepreneur or being your own boss of you know being able to like know your the system better than others and using that to your advantage or you know having a social media brand that you know means that you can I found this a lot and particularly in like care work and and cleaning work as well of like having a kind of Instagram brand uh, or even if it's like decorating your car and you know clean and providing sweets and music in your car um, in a way that gets you high ratings and that's kind of felt as like I'm being very entrepreneurial and you know there seems to I found like a weird attachment to that over that kind of Fordist compromise where you know you have to go into work at a certain time in a certain place for a number of hours and you answer to a boss or a manager who's like a person that you see sometimes you take orders from them um, and obviously, you know, that shift marks a lot of masks, a lot of what's really going on um, when it comes to work becoming more flexible. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is, as you mentioned, the kind of operational and emotional work um, being shifted onto the onto the worker and not remunerated. Um, but I guess like my question is, like, what do you think that we do with that attachment to kind of self-styled entrepreneurship and people increasingly who definitely are workers, not conceiving them of themselves as workers, but conceiving of themselves as entrepreneurs and their own boss? And the fact that for many, going back to that kind of Fordist compromise where, you know, you have security um, is not desirable because it meant being able, having to, you know, be told what to do by a person that you hate that you yes. basically hate it probably. So I wonder if you came across that and what you think we kind of do with that as people who recognize, as you say, that loving your work is a scam in many ways. Yeah, I, I find this a really fascinating question. So thank you so much for answering it. Um, the first thing that I'll say is something that I stole from economist Richard Wolf, who says, you know, when his students would say this, that you know they don't they don't want to have a boss, so they're going to be an entrepreneur, they're going to be a small business person. He's like, cool, so great. So we agree the bosses suck. Right. We agree that bosses are bad, that not wanting to have a boss is like an eminently reasonable desire. Like my father was like mm. this. My father was a, a, you know, Jewish second generation immigrant, you know, small business owner. And for him, it was, you know, it was a good 50 percent that nobody would hire you because you were Jewish. And then, well, I don't want to have a boss anyway, so I'm going to work for myself. And I think that's super real. Like having a boss is terrible. I'm a freelancer. I don't like, I like not having a boss. It's great. Um, what's not great is, especially because I'm an American, like I also have really lousy health insurance because I don't have a job. Um, I don't know how much money I'm going to make every month. And so I think that one of the things that's been really important to think about when we talk about like gig worker organizing, um, I just did an episode of my podcast last week on California's Proposition 22, which sort of locks mm -hmm. in class status for gig economy workers. And, you know, the thing about it is that, you know, everybody, Uber and, and company will all say, well, the workers love the flexibility, the workers love the flexibility. And the, you know, the response from the organizing drivers is like, well, we want to keep the flexibility, but like y'all are still bosses. Like just because I can theoretically turn the app on at any time doesn't mean that Uber doesn't get to decide which rides I get shown, which what fares I charge, um, what percentage of the tip I keep, like all of those things. 
And so you still have a boss, right? If you're working for Uber, I still have a boss when I'm writing for a magazine. I just have a lot of different bosses. And, you know, when you have, you have a boss at Uber, you just can't see them. I was just reading an article at the New Republic on, on the sort of submerged boss phenomenon. And so I think, I think it's important to recognize that the desire to not have a boss comes from like actual demands of workers who have been making demands for autonomy on the job for a million years, um, or it feels like that. And also that like capital is very good at, at taking the demands of workers and synthesizing those back into the next iteration mm -hmm. of capital. So I, I, in the introduction to this book, I, I draw on Luke Boltansky and Eve Chappello's The New Spirit of Capitalism, where they argue that the critiques that people were making in the 1960s and 1970s of the kind of work that existed, um, which at the time, you know, was, was factory work. Everybody talks about Lordstown, which was this iconic General Motors factory that closed in 2019 where you had all of these workers sort of rebelling against the work itself, which meant not only, you know, rebelling against GM, but also against their union. And those demands, when, when you know, capital looks at demands for autonomy and more freedom and more flexibility and maybe some work that isn't so damn boring, that gets fed back to us as this entrepreneurial garbage, right? To like be your own boss and then brand yourself. And that's been going on, you know, for quite a while. And I could talk about this forever, but I'm going to let you ask. <laughs> yeah, and I think that in a in a in a sense, you know, the the when it comes to like the demands for that emerge out of you know this particular moment, I think a lot of the time, you know, I find that people kind of ignore it when when workers say, you know when workers express some kind of attachment to some elements of it, because mm -hmm. we kind of want to say, no, 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 we just want to go back to how things were. But really what we need to do is like create new understandings and new conceptions of what it means um, of what work should do in our lives. And, you know, and that doesn't mean necessarily going back to Fordist, the Fordist kind of um, model. Um, but so I, I also, think that you know and this is I guess um kind of related uh the pandemic has obviously um thrown like a massive grenade into established ideas of of work of you know who does what work of who does and what is valuable and set essential work um of commuting into the office five days a week um, some of real many people have realized that they don't need to be in the office five days a week from like nine to six in order to finish what they have to do. A lot more people have probably realized that they're in bullshit jobs and no one really misses them when they're not there. Um, and you know, many people have had to spend a, have spent a lot more time doing things uh, other than work. You know, whether that's developing um, hobbies or like spending time with with people. And a lot of people have probably found that quite quite difficult. Um, and, you know, the, the notion of the pro like the proletariat or of working people um, not going into work and being paid to not go into work was sort of so disgusting to the ruling classes that they've literally let like 100,000 people die um, in order to not have that be something that happens for a long time, a long enough time for people to get used to. It. I think Ian Duncan Smith, even like the first thing he sort of said at the beginning of this pandemic was that like, 
we shouldn't go on to furlough because it will disincentivize people to work. So this idea that people will somehow break their attachment to like work as the as the thing that gives them inherent value as a person um, might be broken down, and that is not worth you know that not not conceding on that is worth literally hundreds of thousands of deaths. So I guess my question is, you know, do you think that the moment to, the the moment to make a serious intervention in that and to really capitalize on that, do you think that has passed? Um, and if not, what do you think that that, that in kind of intervention should be? Oh my God. I mean, I love the honesty of these people though, right? Where they're just like, oh my God, if we pay people to stay home for like two months, then then uh, they'll never work again. Like, oh, you're <laughs> telling on yourself there, friend. You know, you're, you're making my point for me. Um, my favorite personally was the Lieutenant Governor of Texas who was just like, well, grandparents would obviously be willing to die to save the economy. And you're just like, you... <laughs> You said that. You know we can hear you. <laughs> you said that. And then like double down on it, right? Um, the level of like honesty about how capitalism works that we're seeing is really interesting. And honestly, like I don't think the moment is gone because I mean like right now what's happening on Twitter is everybody is talking about like a bunch of guys from a Reddit board who um, gamed the short selling of, of a hedge fund that was going to, you know, short sell GameStop. It's hilarious, right? Because like, I'm watching these, you know, like these very serious financial reporters talk about how the stock market exists to allocate value to productive industry. And it's just like, lol, <laughs> buddy, buddy, you're saying that with a straight face in the year of our whatever the hell, 2021, <laughs> where Jeff Bezos and company have gotten $3.7 trillion richer and working class people have gotten $3.9 trillion poorer. And oh, that must be a coincidence. The stock market is efficient. Elon Musk is the richest man in the world for having produced <laughs> a handful of crappy electric cars. Like, what the hell? You know, like every day we get sort of more proof that the system is absolutely absurd. And... I think that's great as long as we can figure out ways to channel that into something other than just like suicidal cynicism, which is like an absolutely real danger when we're all trapped in our homes and haven't seen another human in person. And I'm just getting like super emotional about like, I'm looking at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so, so the question is, you know, what do we do with this moment when, when everything is just clearly patently freaking absurd when like the things you might have enjoyed about your job at some point are just like unavailable and now all you've got is the worst part of your job mm. um maybe now that job is making you risk your life right um we just had a big strike here in new york city of the workers the hunts point terminal market which is a produce market that sort of wholesales produce to the produce stands around the city and there are you know, a couple hundred people who work at this giant market and six of them have died of COVID and hundreds of them have gotten sick. And, you know, this was probably an okay job before it was a union job before, but now it might kill you. Mm. And so, yeah, I think it's just getting sort of more absurd and also like more horrible and depressing each time, you know, we go back into lockdown, I think. And so it's, you know, not to be any more sappy than I already am today, but like, this is why I think moments like this where we can actually get together and talk about it and feel less atomized for a little while are really important because 
that's the beginning of, of getting somewhere to change it. And, you know, I wrote this book, I finished my first complete draft of it in London at the end of last February, and then flew back to the US and basically straight into lockdown one and had to re-interview all of my interview subjects about what their how their work life had changed under COVID. And it was just like, everybody's shit has gotten worse. And it's only gotten worse since, you know, last April when I was doing those re-interviews. So I think there, yeah, there's just a fantastic opportunity to talk about this stuff now, but like also, you know, 100,000 dead in the UK, 400 and something thousand dead in the US, like the pressure is also real. Um, mm. You know, I, I don't want to be just like, oh, it's a great opportunity to like, you know, prove myself right. Like people are dying and we've, we've been right about how like absolutely just like murderous the system is, which means the, the need to stop it is that much more intense. And I wonder if like, and I, I don't know if this has been the case in the US, but I've noticed definitely in, um, in the UK, like there's this kind of uh, so I feel like a lot of trade, like the strategies of the really big trade unions up until now has always been this idea of like, oh, you know, like we never want to go on strike. Like we want to work. That's what we want. We want more jobs. We want da da da. Um, you know, and that like going on strike is like this kind of very like thing that we do not willingly. And, you know, we don't want to ever have to be put in that position. And then you have this situation where, a couple of unions that did go out on a limb and say actually what we're fighting for is to not go to work and what comes to mind there is the fire brigades union although they were fighting for a particular thing in that they had been working um, under a particular system and then the government wanted to scrap that system and then you have the neu um who did a fantastic job and obviously got completely demonized in the media do you think that there's something in there about how with those with the exception of those two sectors, this kind of internalization um, of, you know, oh, we always want to go to work and we always want to demand more jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being kind of like the circumscribed imagination of how unions fight in labor struggles. Right. Do you think that that has also kind of contributed to the fact that in this particular moment, we almost don't know, we haven't got like, yeah. the organization to fight for something that this actually provides a once in a generation opportunity to fight for. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Joshua Clover in his book, Riot Strike Riot, calls it the affirmation trap, right? Which is like mm-hmm. the shift from unions who used to go on strike. I mean, A, they you know, were going on strike just to force people to recognize the union at all. And then, you know, for however many hundred years, the biggest demand of the labor movement was always shorter hours. It was always yeah. less work. Right. And so what happened as deindustrialization begins, then you're fighting to keep your jobs and sort of going on strike to keep your job is a contradiction in terms. And we saw this even last year or two years ago, 2019. Anyway, in the U.S., we had um, General Motors went on strike. And one of the things they were trying or the workers at General Motors went on strike against General Motors one of the things they were trying to do was keep a couple of plants that the company was closing down, including Lordstown, um, open. But it turns out you can't refuse to work in order to keep your job working. Like that just doesn't work because the company already wants to close the plant and, and ship the jobs overseas mm-hmm. um, or, you know, get robots. So 
you end up with this thing that that Joshua called the affirmation trap, which is like workers unions are stuck in the position of affirming their desire to work. We mm. want the jobs. We want the jobs in this country. We want the you know. And that actually really does throw a wrench into labor's most powerful tactic, which is the strike. So it turns out now, though, the strike is perfect. Like at the beginning of lockdown, I was saying like the sick out is just the absolute perfect tactic for right now. Like, what are you going to do? Say, come to work. Sorry, got a cough, can't come in. Especially when, you know, it's still really hard to get tested here. I don't know if it's gotten any easier in the UK, but like, it's still next to impossible to get tested for COVID quickly and to get your results back quickly. So like, we're sick, can't come to work. Um, and I think that's, it's a, again, it's a powerful moment to sort of realign with that original demand of the labor movement, which is less work. And even when, you know, hopefully at some freaking point, the pandemic is gone or managed or under more control than it is right now, and it's safer to go back into these situations, we're still gonna have high unemployment. We're still gonna have a looming climate catastrophe that necessitates we work less um, because mm -hmm. we use too much garbage and we're setting the planet on fire. So we have to actually like take these things seriously as demands that would among other things like distribute the existing work more fairly so that we don't have some people who are working an astronomical amount of hours and other people who are stuck on zero hours contracts, you know, wondering if they're going to be able to pay the rent. And then, yeah, it's, it's just like, it's much easier to use the most powerful things that labor can do to demand to stop work than it is to use them to somehow try to demand more work. Mm. Yeah, and I think also, um, like, one thing that I um, thought you touched on really well in your book, but I thought you might want to talk about it here as well, um, is sort of the ways in which a lot of the issues that you uh, identify in your book, and obviously, you know, these concepts like emotional labor are derived from, like, feminist theories of work, um, and kind of this idea of what is and not is not considered work within work. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you find that those issues were experienced either differently or similarly, or whether that's being converged um, across, across work sectors that are racialized and gendered in different ways? Well. Yeah, I mean, my, my book was born on the same day as Angela Davis, it turns out. I was very <laughs> excited when I opened Twitter yesterday. People were like, it's Angela Davis's birthday. And I was like, it's my book <laughs> too, because like, Aquarius Queens. <laughs> I know, because like the, the very last citation in this book is actually from Angela Davis. And, and it's just deeply indebted to thinkers like her who have always sort of understood the way um, race and gender produce class and the way that different kinds of work produce different kinds of subjects and the way that those in turn then continue to produce back like race and gender. So one of the chapters in the book is about paid domestic work, paid cleaning, caretaking, mm -hmm. all of this. Um, and it's in the US in particular, this is, is work that's always done in the shadow of slavery, right? That black women did domestic work and farm work under a system where they were not given any choice in the matter and were, you know, horribly abused and raped and, and just, and when the system of slavery ends, 
the new system of Jim Crow, of white supremacy 2.0, you know, sort of rallies to make sure that they are still kept in those particular kinds of servitude. And that continues up until now, right, where the people who do paid cleaning and caring work tend to be women of color, um, immigrant women, as well as still black women. And that is deeply bound up in sort of our ideas of femininity and, and sort of white femininity versus black and brown femininity, which is, you know, white femininity is pure and has to keep their hands clean. And other women are sort of naturally dirty and also somehow naturally really good at taking care of children. And all of these sort of narratives about who and what is naturally good at what thing, right, are, are just, mm all throughout all of these conversations about work. Um, you know, you get the flip side of it when I'm, I'm writing about athletes at the end of the book, which, you know, I'm, I, you've got um, like college athletes in the US who, you know, the, the NCAA, the, the Amateur Athletic Association, um, which is a joke that makes billions with a B on the unpaid work of, of college students who play sports and most of them are black and brown, right? So once again, you end up with this industry of black people's bodies being used for entertainment and unpaid. And like, there's a reason that people have compared the system, including the athletes themselves who are talking about like going in and like literally sort of being poked at and prodded by like pro scouts, you know, and this guy is just like, this is like being on the auction block. You know, this reminds me of what I learned about in my history classes. And so that history, it, it shapes the sort of immediate feeling and experiences that these workers have. It also has shaped the law. So farm work and domestic work were carved out of labor law in the U.S. for a long time. And we continue to see that again up until today, up until 2014, when the Supreme Court handed down a decision that ruled that home care workers you know, again, the descendants of people doing paid domestic work were not really workers in the same way other workers were. And that's, you know, written by right-wing Supreme Court appointees. And it's just, yeah, that, that legacy, they don't say anymore, well, these are black women, so we don't need to pay them really. But mm -hmm. they, they still come up with some interesting narrative about how they're not real workers and therefore don't really need to get paid. And that is in you know, in reverse, the sort of way that the narrative around college athletes is they're not really workers, so they don't need to get paid. And this is like a nerdy American point of whatever, but the guy that Joe Biden just put in charge of the National Labor Relations Board for temporarily anyway, after he fired the Trump appointee, is the guy who wrote a decision that said that college athletes were in fact workers and did have the right to organize. So I don't wanna to get too optimistic about Joe Biden, at all but that he probably didn't even know he did that don't worry girl <laughs> he was on top of things when they put <laughs> in job because it would be a potentially huge thing that costs very rich people a lot of money if they suddenly had to pay college athletes so i'm hoping for that mm. and i wonder if also like i think that the and this is again like being biased in my own work but kind of this in this introduction of just like everyone being rated and people who had done, you know, if you take again, minicab driving, well, you know, mm -hmm. minicab driving is, or taxi driving is always involved a level of like, 
conversation and you know like kind of and all of that kind of work but that's not what you were getting paid to do you were getting paid to take someone from a to b and if you wanted to sit in silence and do that you could do that whereas this kind of new and this is something that's also being experienced by fractional academic staff of you know being constantly rated and being constantly monitored which is like demanding again that layer of 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 work that is not considered work which is right. something that has its legacies in those racial and gendered histories that you talk about but is increasingly affecting all workers as well yeah and i think that that's a really interesting point that your book kind of really raises and especially um that case about the college athletes is also really really fascinating mm -hmm. Um, so my last question before I give the floor to Amelia is, um, you know, I talked about you being what, like the best, one of the best labor journalists out there. I'm sure that you did loads and loads of like field work and research and stuff to, to cram into this, this book. But what didn't make it into the book that you still want people to know about or that you wish you could have put in? I have like 20 chapters for this book that I didn't get to write. Um, it's great. If anybody is listening and is an editor that wants to assign me any of these, um, I do have one that's coming out that's on nursing, um, which is obviously really relevant for the pandemic um, in the Nation magazine. But I wanted to write about musicians. I wanted to write about journalists. I wanted to write mm -hmm. about um, actors. And I wanted to write about also like behind the scenes TV producers. Um, it was in the proposal for the book because I had done this story on reality TV producers who were unionizing because like little known fact of like the rise of reality TV is it was actually done to bust the writers unions because mm -hmm. reality TV is scripted right there are writers on these things but they are not doing the kind of writing that was considered to be the same as what people who were in the writers guild were doing um, so I did an early story in like my early years of being a professional labor journalist like 12 years ago now on the organizing of these freelance writers who you know were, were doing the the unseen and unacknowledged writing of the reality tv shows that we all love so much so like i just i oh god i wanted to keep going and going and going <laughs> going and of course like Katie was already like your book is too long Sarah and I messaged <laughs> my editor at, at Bold Type Books in the US and when the book came out and people were posting those like wonderful like stacks photos I was like but my mm. book long makes it stand out in those stacks <laughs> so you should have let me have two more chapters uh, <laughs> but yeah I mean I'm fascinated right now with like the work of like musicians like you know if you're Beyonce you're doing fine but the majority of people who make a living as sort of recording artists and, and musicians make their living by touring. And when you can't tour, mm -hmm. what are people doing? So that's a story I would really love to write. So if anybody has an assigning budget that's listening to this, um, let's talk. Yeah, yeah. I think especially with um, like the um, the government rejecting EU proposals to like have yeah visa exempt like visas for musicians so that they don't have to like apply and pay for a visa and they can tour around the eu and i think that's partly in order to kind of kill the creative industry and get you know that like that horrible campaign before where it was like oh have you been a are you a successful ballerina but you're not making any money train as a computer scientist yeah. and that kind of like devaluing of those creative industries um, definitely. Coding, right. Like the constant, like learn to code is just so that. You, they yeah, exactly. 
right? Like that's what they like, want. They don't want you to make, you know, <laughs> they don't want the coders to be, continue to be a high paid or um, industry yeah. that to be cheaper. Yeah. And also like being a ballerina and being a coder, are both very difficult skilled things that you can't just like, anyway. Um, yeah. So those are my questions. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was such good food for thought. And now I'm excited to sit back and, and watch the conversation you guys have with Amelia. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, before I pass off to Amelia, please keep uh, keep throwing the comments um, in there and the questions so that we can have some questions at the end. Um, but yeah, I'll pass it off to Amelia. Thank you so much. Amelia, you're muted. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> that is just the the sound of this year, isn't it? Um, I, that was so that was so fascinating. I feel like every time I listen to either of you, both of you, I've learned so much. I've taken like a whole page of notes. Um, but this is so exciting, this book. Um, and uh, I think what I found so compelling about it is it's a takedown of the ideological justification and intensification of exploitation, right? So this idea that you love your work um, justifies exploitation, but it also makes you work harder. Um, and I thought that was just absolutely, like, completely necessary for the moment. And it was also just a wonderful exploration of exactly what work is like nowadays. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you don't um, really see, right? And this is um, what I find so powerful about your work, which does lead me to my first question. Um, so I found in my own research that it's so hard to find really decent journalistic coverage of labor disputes of work in general especially in the uk so you might find an article which is like the trains are going to be shut those unions they're shutting the trains poor consumers poor travelers right um but you never really find out about what the dispute actually is about um how it ended and especially not the kind of view from the shop floor um and this seems to me to have a completely disastrous effect on democracy right um in, a, in an expansive sense and even in a narrow sense um and this is as i said a real strength of your book and your writing more widely is that you bring the experience of work um as told to you um by the workers you speak to but also obviously drawing on your own experience as someone who like almost everyone has to work right but i wondered if you could talk a bit more about the tradition of labor journalism what that means um what the kind of state of the field is uh, in the uk and the us um yeah Oh my goodness. Yeah. So this week there was this the Hunts Point strike that I was talking about earlier. There was a there's a, a Twitter feed that tracks changes to like headlines and abstracts in the New York Times. And so they caught them changing the the headline on the Hunts Point story from something about like, you know, workers on strike for a dollar more an hour to workers on strike threatens the food chain in New York City. And um mm -hmm. Matt Pierce, who's a reporter at the LA Times, sort of caught it and was just like, one of these headlines is written from the point of view of the workers, and one of these headlines is written from the point of view of capital. And what's happened to labor journalism is that you get better labor journalism in Bloomberg Business Week and the Financial Times than you do in, you know, your average, you know, city, new big city newspaper or whatever. Um, and of course, I am have spent most of my career in the US. So my my US media, uh, my UK media takes are not quite as up to date as I would like them to be. But it's really interesting, right? That like, you know, my friend Josh Idelson, who I used to do a podcast with, got hired as a full-time reporter by Bloomberg. 
Um, mm. That's who's going to invest in having a labor reporter. And why? Because they want to know what the workers are up to because they get that it matters. Whereas, you know, I mean, A, like the death of the local newspaper and the consolidation of everything into, you know, hell conglomerates owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is at least a, you know, transnational problem. Um, <laughs> the way that we've lost the coverage of, I mean, A, local areas from all sorts of angles, but B, like when all the coverage is centralized in London and New York, then that's also where capital is centralized. That's also, you know, more and more likely as newspapers become sort of luxury products for people who are in, you know, flying business class, that you will get the labor story from the point of view of capital. And I think it has disastrous effects all over the place. Um, I don't know if he's actually in the audience, but I want to shout out my, uh, my friend Tom Mills, who's an excellent UK media scholar, um, that like, it has absolutely disastrous effects for all sorts of things, right? With, with, from talking about like the election of Donald Trump or Boris Johnson to, you know, Brexit to just day-to-day -day functioning of working class people. So it was funny because during the first couple months of the pandemic, I was joking, everyone's a labor reporter now. Um, because all of a sudden people were like, oh my God, this, what's happening in the workplace is actually really important and we have to cover this. And it was both great and terrible because like, it turns out that like every other kind of beat reporting, labor reporting is a skill. Like I'm very aware of what I don't know in the UK because I don't know the, the law as well. I don't know the history as well. I don't know the media layout as well. But I do have one transferable skill, which is that like, I understand what a union is and how it works. Um, I understand sort of the power dynamic in a workplace. So at least there's that, even if I don't have nearly the sort of awareness of, of UK labor law that somebody who had been doing what I do for decades longer um, in that country knows how to do. And I think the other thing I will just say before I, I go off of this subject is that, you know, once upon a time, unions invested in the news, right? Didn't the sun used to be owned by unions back in the day before it was a rag that you're not allowed to read because it's a scab paper. Um, see, I know that much. <laughs> and, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, unions, of course, have much less power in all realms these days. And that includes, you know, they have much less capital to do things like invest in newspapers. That said, it would be a really good idea, guys. It's actually really important for people to know what the union is and what it does and how it works. Because, you know, now what we end up with a lot of the time is a sort of like generalized admonishment to like join a union as if it's like an individual thing, like donating to charity every month, as opposed to the union is the thing that allows you to get together with your fellow workers and change things. And it's actually been kind of funny because like the reception of this book so far, it's only been out for, you know, a day and a half has been really good. But a lot of people are are just like, but what do we do? And I'm like, join a union. And they're like, but, 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 and I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's what we do. Um, <laughs> the capitalist mode of production also, but like first step organizing your workplace. Yeah. Join your union and get involved. Right. And that's, that's the second step that, um, that when it becomes kind of mummified, gets gets forgotten about. Um, yeah, I think um, one of the, this is such a sappy question, so I apologize in advance for just how sentimental this is, but um, 
one thing that I think comes across so strongly is, is that there is um, an implicit and explicit critique of the way that love functions um, under capitalism um, in your book. And I think that's, that's again, one of the real strengths of it. So the question I have for you now is, it seems like capitalism kind of cannibalizes our desires, making us work with them and, and for them and putting them themselves to work. Um, one thing that you do so strikingly is to go beyond this question of individual fulfillment, subjective feelings about something and think about the question of how our desires are conditioned by and made useful to capitalism. So here comes the sappy bit. How would love, desire and sociability change in another kind of society, a, a non-capitalist society? What would, how would we love under communism, I guess? This is when I'm happy again, which is true. Like the ending of my book is just like, I'm such a sap. And I was just like, like literally writing it with like tears streaming down my face. I'm like absolutely a sucker. I used to joke with a friend that like all communists are romantics. Um, it's, it's true. Um, and I think one of the things that has been really useful and, you know, I always go back to good old Maggie Thatcher here. Um, you know, she she understood when she said there is no such thing as society, that this was an aspirational project that she was aiming to do. And that, like, it's not an accident that she said there are individual men and women and there are families because mm -hmm. the strain that gets put on the family when it becomes, you know, as Kathy Weeks calls it, like an individualized, privatized economic unit. Is immense and it's terrible and like it's just you know, when we talk about sort of work-life balance, what that usually means is like, you know, you have your job and then you go home and take care of your kids. And I do not have kids, but like, I imagine that there are all sorts of better ways to relate to one's kids too. But I think the thing that I want to get at in talking about how we care about each other is that it is the basis for solidarity, right? That like, when one is on the picket line with one's coworkers or, you know, supporting strangers in the case of like going to do picket line support at something like the Hunts Point strike, you might not like each other and you don't have to, but you do show up with a feeling of love that this is, this is important, that other people are important. And it is precisely a system that does not value that because it does not know how to put a price tag on it that lets 100,000 people die of COVID, right? Or 400,000 people die of COVID in this country. So I think it's absolutely imperative to sort of take back this emotional investment from work, which is after all, just like an emotional investment in someone else's capital accumulation, which like, what the hell? Um, and actually put it back on people. It should be absolutely tragic that one person died of COVID, let alone 100,000 people died of COVID. And to actually like build a society that would not allow for those people to die, um, that's, that just, it requires such a deep change in how we think about the value of humans you know, back to my, my buddy, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas saying like grandma and grandpa would be happy to die so there could be an economy for their kids. It's like, y'all won't like stop driving SUVs to save the planet, but you think grandma should die of a horrible death of COVID so that, you know, Jimmy can continue to work at McDonald's? Like, what the hell, you know? And so I just, I don't know. Um, I think 
it's been brought home very intensely for me. This is the part where I really will cry because I've been alone for a lot of the pandemic. And I have like literally, you know, been in this apartment or another one that looks like it by myself a lot. And so I think a lot about what I'm missing and it ain't work, you know, but I miss <laughs> my friends, I miss being in a political community. That means a lot to me. Um, and it means a lot to me to, to be doing this, you know, across an ocean right now with all of you, because you, you guys are my political community as much more lately than anything in, in the U.S. So that's just like my being a little. Um, and I, I absolutely think that that's just fundamentally super important. Like, I don't know what it would look like. Um, I, I love the line from Sylvia Federici that I quote in this chapter where she says, you know, um, we, they, it's a line from the wages against, uh, wages against housework is the title of the piece. And she says, we want to call work. What is work in order that we might discover what is love. And like, yeah, on some level, I think there's just depths of things that we have never been able to discover because we're too busy friggin' working all the time. Mm. There's a whole, a whole, um, intensity of emotions that is just kind of kept from us of like of sociability of new forms of of being and relating to each other um i think the point you made about um uh solidarity and community there and stepping into political community and putting aside those um individual feelings about people is is um is so important and something that um that has been so hard in the pandemic because everyone's been kind of stuck in their rooms um or in really dangerous conditions and everyone is exhausted and frayed and that ability to um you know feel part of a movement um seems you know a, a moment seems to kind of recede and, and just reminding ourselves of that kind of uh, the transformative power of solidarity in a way the ability to step outside of yourself and above yourself and into this this thing that you're brought to with with care and love um is so is such a transformative experience and, and perhaps even hints at what those other ways of being might look like um, and again, the point you made about the the Thatcher line is that that bit is that's that's where people always stop. They forget that she says, and there are families, right? And that is so that she's doing a lot with that. That line is doing a lot of work. Right? Um, she's not just saying that it's not just we're not just individuals. We're individuals um, who do our jobs, accumulate as much uh, kind of capital as possible, and then go home to our families, right? And that is such an ideological implication of the family. Um, yeah. Um, I guess another question, and I think this is something Dolly touched on earlier. Um, how do we, how do we take the insight um, of the scam of loving work, and how do we bring that into our union organizing? How do we think about that? Um, how do we kind of denaturalize that love? I mean, obviously, one step is just to be like, read this, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> but how do we have those conversations with that colleague who is like, no, I love my job. Like, I love it. I, I love doing this. This this is my life. Or, you know, the kind of pathological types, the workaholics, the people for whom work is their thing. Like, how do we, what do we do when we're confronted with those kind of people tactically? 
you know, I was talking to somebody a few days ago about this and they said something about like consciousness raising. And I was like, yes, we need to do consciousness raising groups around this book of which, you know, the idea of which I'm indebted to, to Mark Fisher for bringing that back and, and uh, Kira Milburn and Jeremy Gilbert and, and the others who talk about that. Um, I, I would love to figure out how to do like work won't love you back consciousness raising groups. Um, so if anybody wants to think about that one, get at me. Um, but I think I think sort of like the, you know, I love being my own boss thing. The thing that I, I often ask people is sort of picking it apart, right? Like, what is it? What is it that you love? What is it that we miss? What meaning are we looking for? Um, I did a lot of stories on plants closing. I talked about Lordstown earlier. I also went to Indiana to the carrier plant that Donald Trump had made a big deal about during his first presidential campaign. And you know, in talking to the folks who are losing their jobs, in talking to people in this, you know, this older form of work in a way, right? In, in industrial labor, where you're not necessarily expected to be emotionally invested in the thing you're doing on the assembly line, you're just supposed to show up and do it. Um, and they were grieving, and spoiler alert, this is like the next book project that I'm working on. Um, they were grieving something. Right. And it was very, very real and painful. And the, the word grief was used many times in these conversations um, was also true of, of Anne Marie Reinhardt, who's the worker at Toys R Us that I profile in this book, um, that you're absolutely grieving something that you lose. But what is that actually? What is it that we're grieving? And I, I found it really interesting to sort of spend time with people and talk about what is it actually that we are losing? What is the story that is being told, um, I think particularly with the industrial work, that the question of sort of losing a certain idea of masculinity is really invested in there, that this is something I have been poking at for a while and plan on poking at a lot more. But also we are told so many times over and over and over again that we are worthless if we don't have a job, right? That, that you know, Ian Duncan Smith and, and company um, want to make sure we, we know that we're worthless if we don't have a job, that in fact, they would rather let us die than let us not work. So it's really hard to break that, right? We're all shaped by this thing that is, um, you know, I, I, I sort of go back to Gramsci in this book, because of course I do. Um, talking about how common sense is a material force. It's not just sort of la 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 here. It's, it's actually like in the institutions that shape us every day. And, you know, I, I start this book with the line, I love my work. I'm sitting here like, yay, I get to talk with my, my brilliant friends about this book that I wrote. And this is so exciting and it's fun. And also like, oh my God, there were periods when I was finishing this book that I wanted to jump out a window. Um, I wanted to throw my computer into the Thames and never look back. And it was miserable and terrible and I was deeply depressed. Um, and it's just like super real. And so I've had to sort of deprogram myself at this. Um, I thank Kathy Weeks for writing The Problem With Work for helping me start that process. And like, I think it's really interesting to, to get at what is it that we actually miss. It's been really interesting for me to ask myself what I miss. Yeah, I think that the point there about the kind of lack of possibility of recognition as well from other, other things, right? As work spreads over more of our time and the rest of um, 
what we like to kind of civil society or other social institutions are so stripped back, right? Like where do people find that community? Where do people find that recognition? Um, remember there was this kind of, uh, that ridiculous dental advert on the tube in the summer, which was like, try to make work like, like, you know, it was like getting on the tube, going to work, <laughs> having a coffee. And it presented these as like, you must miss these things so much. And, and obviously it was ridiculous, but there was a kind of grain of truth in it because for so many people, that is that is their life, right? Because the other sources of sociability have been made incredibly expensive. Um, kind of people are cut off, people are very lonely. Um, and, and this is the you point to again in that, the wonderful conclusion to your book where you talk about the number of people who report not having any friends, right? And if you don't have friends, but you have work, right? That no wonder people are developing these kind of attachments which can be exploited. Um, yeah, and other things. Yeah made to be more like work like I mm. hate like deeply hate dating apps because it's just like this is like a job interview I don't want to go on a job interview on Friday when I'm done with work <laughs> you know I don't want to <laughs> wiping on tinder for then some odd conversation that's going to be like a freaking job interview like how is it mm. that we put everything into work um, it just, it makes me nuts. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. But it's interesting, right? Because like all of these things have now turned into more ways to brand yourself, sell yourself, promote yourself. Um, you know, it's been like, everybody knows that like, you know, on January 6th, a bunch of Trumpies tried to, you know, lynch Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and company. Um, and I had been trying to like stay off social media a lot before that because it just is depressing. And then of course, like things are happening at light speed in this stupid place that I have to call home for a little while longer. And so I've been on social media a lot more and then my book is coming out. So then I have to be on social media a lot more because I have to be promoting this thing. And like, I, I, mm. Yeah, it, it gets all caught up with your sociability in these ways that are really complicated and difficult, right? Like, um, th these people who are all on this call with me are all my friends. And I do like miss hanging out with them and talking about things that aren't work. But also we talk about work when we hang out. And that's a thing. <laughs> um, and we talk about politics, which is and is not work. Um, and the lines are really blurred and difficult to separate. And I, on some level, like wouldn't have it any other way. Like I, I, some friends were encouraging me to date men that I did not have anything politically in common with. And I was like, how, how well do you think that's going to go over? It's just, it's impossible, but like, right. But what might it look like? Mm. let go of that what might it look like to be I mean what might it look like to not have to have my political identity be like a weird niche thing because like everybody was also a communist um that would be great it's getting bigger it's getting there's more of us now <laughs> I remember a time when like you couldn't say that out loud and now the financial times is still you know from uh running previews of my book and I'm just like yeah I'm still a Marxist. Um, <laughs> so it's both been great, but it is also kind of weird, right? In a way, like my work has just expanded into another part of my life. I think it shows how much the critique of, of work and, and through that, the critique of, of capitalism appeals to people, it resonates with people and, and, and the kind of sharpening of, of people's experiences as, 
as austerity kind of, um, you know, it's been what, nearly, no, more than a decade, right, of, of austerity in the UK, and, and people are are really feeling the, those sharp edges of of, of contemporary work. Um, and okay, this is this is the last question from me, and it is um it's a tricky one. <laughs> they've they've been sentimental from sentimental to very hard, but um this one is uh, <laughs> I guess there are two elements to this. So what if anything makes work better? So um that can be um. Some of that is obviously things which are, if we had transformed work completely, if we had a different way of producing, different different relations of production, right? Okay, that's one element. But the other element is, are there different? Is there differences in experiences of exploitation and different degrees of alienation within capitalism? Um, and what can people do to try and make their work better? Yeah. So I'm rocking my William Morris themed nails today um, because I I love William Morris's sort of ideas of, of what made work pleasurable was was hope of rest, first of all. So like less work would make work better. Um, hope of product, which means you actually get to control the thing that you're making, right? This is like very specific, like Marx's at bottom theory of alienation is you were alienated from the things you're making and doing. Um, you know, I made this book, but actually the publisher owns the rights to it. And there is only certain, you know, it, it's mine, but it's not really mine. You know, um, and I still would say that I am much less alienated from this book than, you know, my my buddy Chucky is from the, the cars that he was making at GM, right, where he has like absolutely no claim on that thing out in the world other than being like, hey, I work at that factory. Um, <laughs> You know, so hope of product and then hope of pleasure in the work itself, which is a, a complicated one. But I would say the thing that that really matters is power. You know, it's it's some ability to push back on somebody who's telling you what the conditions are going to be. It's some ability to say, I'm not going to take this level of crap like. So I worked in restaurants for a long time before, during and after university. And at some point I ended up moving back home and I mentioned my, my parents being small business owners. Um, my parents had health issues in my mid twenties and I ended up moving back home to run their business for them. And I was still doing sort of customer service, direct interaction work. People were still jerks, but there I was the boss. And if somebody was really a jerk to me, I could tell them to eat shit and leave. Um, and I could not do that when I worked in the restaurant. And so that was better for my mental health, just that I could tell somebody no. And I feel the same way about being a freelance journalist is that like I am less financially secure, which I think would make my life a lot better if I was more so. Um, but when I was working at a place where I had a boss and I had a very, 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 abusive boss at one of these places. Um, you may have heard about him on This American Life. And when I was working there, if I wanted to write something and he disagreed with me that it was important, then I couldn't write it. Now, if I write some, if I want to write something and I pitch it to one editor and they say no, I take it somewhere else and mm -hmm. I write what I want to write. And if somebody comes to me and says, do you want to write the story for us? I can say no. Um, and so those kinds of things, even though they are only partial and we still need to overthrow the capitalist mode of production, I think they are some of the things that make it a little bit better. And all of that, you know, comes with power. 
Um, in my mm -hmm. case, it comes with sort of a more organized industry. Like there have just been more union drives and more organizing going on in journalism over the last five years or so. And that has made working conditions in the industry better. And also because I have a level of name recognition now that I didn't have 10 years ago, that gives me some individual level bargaining power. So mm -hmm. all of these things, I, I still think just the question just comes down to, to how much power we have at work. Mm -hmm. And power kind of, as you said, to say no and over tasks, right? So um, the ability to to do things in the order and the way in which you want to do them. Um, yeah. And the ability to say, you know, no, my contract says this time and you're not making me work until this time. And if you do, I'm talking to my rep. Um, yeah. Yeah, these, these things are all absolutely crucial. Um, I think it is time for us to do Q and A's from the audience. Um, that was, as always, a really enriching and fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for that, Sarah. I'm so excited about your book. Um, yeah, it's gonna change a lot of people's lives. I hope so. Great. Um, Sarah, do you wanna do three questions at a time, academic style, or do you wanna do one back and forth? Oh, um, it's up to you. You're in charge. All right. Let's do, let's just do back and forth. Um, first question, picking at uh, random, which work-related demands should be, uh, should the left focus on under Biden? Um, where is his administration most likely to concede to pressure? Oh my goodness. I mean, I already mentioned like one good thing that he's done. So I'm, I'm actually shocked that I have one good thing to, to say this early in the administration. It's only been a week. Um, I So there's a thing called the PRO Act, right, which is a collection of um, demands that labor has been making that there, people are saying that they might be able to get it through budget reconciliation, which means it would not be hung up by a filibuster in the Senate. Sorry for people who have no interest in Senate procedure. American politics is stupid. Um, the important thing to know in that case is that Bernie Sanders is the Senate Budget Ch Committee chairman. And that means that we have actually somebody with real power who is on the side of working people who is going to decide what gets shoved through in probably the only things that will ever pass the stupid Senate when it's this deadlocked. Um, so I think that's really important, but also so much of labor law in the US is down to state and local levels. So I think really like, you know, something like a $15 an hour minimum wage, if it gets passed at the national level, by the time it's phased in by 2025, it's going to be, I mean, it's already not enough money for someplace like New York. So there is a way to think on the national level, which is great, but also think about the places like Seattle, which is a really important, was the first place to pass a 15, well, SeaTac Washington was actually the first place to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage. But places like that can be an example that then spreads. And I think we should not forget about that when there's a Democrat in the White House, because like the Democrats in the White House often screw us. And like the Senate is a you know, terribly reactionary organization that should be nuked from space once Bernie's no longer budget committee chair. Um, great. Um, we have, I know we have two from Theodora. Um, I'm gonna ask you to try to mush them together there. One of them is um, your thoughts on UBI um, and whether UBI provides us some way out. Um, and the other one is how has working from home during the pandemic impacted upon union organizing? And in terms of removing the workers, uh, the feeling of a workplace collectively and uh, decision-making. 
Yeah, so my answer on the UBI is we're only going to get one if we already have a strong workers movement. Otherwise, the only kind of UBI thing we're going to get is like absolute crisis, like Trump sending out $1,200 checks when, when you know, everything is on fire, or it's going to be at the expense of having a functional social safety net, which like the US doesn't really have and the UK only has like a little bit more of one, but I do miss the NHS. Um, in terms of working from home, I think it's been interesting, right? Because on the one hand, um, you're not seeing your coworkers every day. On the other hand, you're also not seeing your boss every day. So um, the ways in which you, if you can find ways to communicate, do not use your work email to organize a union. Your boss can always read your work email. Um, but if you have other ways to talk to your coworkers without your boss around, that could be easier now. Um, and also I think, you know, again, the, the question of like work has gotten more crappy for pretty much everyone under mm -hmm. the pandemic, even if we are working from home and are, are mostly fairly safe. So I think it, it gives us an opening to think of ways to talk about work. And for, I, I don't actually know if this listener is, is from the UK or the US, but you know, in the UK, you can just join a union. Um, in the US, we, you don't really get any benefits from just joining a union unless you actually unionize your workplace. So I think that the strategic questions are a little bit different, but in either case, um, I think there's interesting opportunities now to think about how we talk to each other and how we, you know, should, when we get back into the workplace, if that is a thing that happens, like make sure you have everybody's contact information. These are good things to have. Um, cool. Next one. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if uh, Amelia and, and Dahlia might also be interested in this question, which is any advice for people who just finished the higher education and are approaching the job market, how does one avoid being tricked even more? <laughs> God, I do not know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just want to say I graduated from university in 2002 into the recession that was happening right after 9-11. And then I finished graduate school in 2009 after the global economy had just collapsed. So you have my deepest sympathies because it sucks out there. Um, and I think right now, like the, the problem isn't being tricked right now so much as the problem is just like, there's just nothing. And like the, the situation is just really bad. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be taking what they can get right now. And that's, that's super, super real. Um, and I wish I, I had like advice that I could give that would, you know, just make all of this disappear. But I do think that what's going to be really important is that like now you have a generation of people who are making up a, a larger and larger part of the workforce who have lived through these successive experiences of just like global freaking catastrophe that has shaped our working lives. And so it's harder and harder for people to say that like, everything's great. Like, you can't tell me that capitalism makes sense when some dudes on a subreddit just like broke Wall Street, um, which is great, frankly, like break Wall Street more. But right, like it's it's just more and more obvious to more and more people that, that things are bullshit. And so I imagine that like when you get into work, whatever that might be, you will probably have more coworkers who agree with you that this is all a scam. Dahlia, uh, Amelia, yeah. anything to <laughs> I mean, I think I think that that is is um, certainly 
true. I do think, and you know, Sarah's book goes into this really well about um, academia and how actually I think it, it's kind of surprisingly, I found it surprisingly hard to um, mobilize like my fellow grad students um, and PhD students because there is just a real sense of like, we're doing this because we care about it and we love it and and all of that. And I also think that because of the way that higher education is right now is that more and more people who have massive safety net, like a far larger proportion of people who are doing PhDs now are people who have a safety net. And so they feel able to like, sit out you know when we were fighting for um extensions in light of the pandemic because so many people including me like I was just about to go on my field work and then suddenly you know it got completely destroyed by the pandemic and I was like okay I need an, a funded extension and getting people to to get like get on board to fight for that was kind of hard a lot of people felt you know we don't want to look like we're money grubbing and stuff like that and I was just like I am a hundred percent a money grubber that's like the reason of my life um, but like I think that so I think that that is one thing that is really difficult in academia is that it is so much like so framed as like a a um although you're not talking about higher academia specifically but um, in when I talk about like the academic job market, and I think a lot of other places as well, is this kind of idea of, and especially a lot of public sector work as well of like healthcare and and you know education and all of these things that you're, it's almost seen as like a, a vocation, and therefore you having demands for more money or less work is seen as like distasteful. Um, but I think, and that's why I think that the fact that the NEU won is like really, really significant because it was kind of like to win on that demand for to not go into work is something that has not been won for a long time. So I really hope that we can use that to pressure other unions and other sectors to start feeling more comfortable to actually put forward that, that kind of demand. I think there's also for a lot of people starting out, there's this this career issue, right, which is like, I need to go along with everything that is told to me, because in five years, the person who's doing this thing is going to be the person making those hiring decisions. And and I think um, we know in higher education, this is like total nonsense, right? There are like hundreds of people going for like a tiny amount of jobs. So it doesn't matter whether you sucked up to some awful neoliberal shill during your like first year of your PhD or whatever. <laughs> like if you were like, no, I'm not, I'm going to cross the picket line because maybe I'll get a job. That's not how it works, right? Like the way we build power is not by um, sucking up to managers, um, looking like staying as long as possible in these kind of ridiculous competitions with each other where it's like no I'm not leaving till half five no I'm not leaving till six like that those pressures are really there for a lot of young like graduates people who've just left university and that attitude is like is 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 obviously personally harmful right but you're but it stops solidarity with your fellow workers and it it, it puts it pits you against each other and, and that's something which you get around by um being active in your union and talking to each other and just complaining right seeing what people are annoyed about um it's not gonna create more jobs right that's not gonna solve the, the serious issue of underemployment but it is gonna make jobs you're in whether that is kind of prestigious vocational calling jobs or um like service work or these or less prestigious kind of kind of work like that's 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 the first step always is see where your colleagues are at like what are they thinking um you know, don't try and like compete with them for scraps. Um, try and win the whole 
table, plate, both. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I like that endorsement of complaining. Yes. Um, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like this next question, which is um, from Beth, and it's, how can we build solidarity amongst uh, gig economy workers who may have several jobs, some they proclaim to love more than others? Um, and I'm thinking of creatives who may work across two to four jobs at a time. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's there is such a way that, like, Uber and Lyft and, and Deliveroo and whatever are, like, subsidizing people's, you know, cre careers in the arts especially now when like, you know, again, we were talking about performing arts, like it, those are just not happening right now. So people are, are finding ways to do whatever they can. Um, I've talked to lots of people, particularly, you know, in California who work in, in you know, film and, and are in between PA gigs are, you know, driving for Uber. And so, yeah, I think that's a really interesting place because like these gig companies can be places where like, on, on some level, something we'd call like cross-class solidarity is happening, except if we're all driving for Uber, then at that moment, at least, we are all in the same class location. So I think that's a really interesting point for solidarity if we can figure out how to organize Uber drivers, because again, Uber controls the app and it certainly doesn't like to have you talk to each other. Um, and yeah, I mean, what does it say when we have internalized the idea that like we have to do other work in order to be able to do our real job? Like I was working in restaurants and I was doing freelance journalism basically for free or for like $50 a pop so that I could like get to a point where I could have a career. Um, the scholars that I quote in my book call it hope labor, right? It's this work that you do in, in the hopes of actually being able to like get paid for it someday. And that's just like crazy, but we have absolutely normalized it. And the thing to do is, is unnormalize it, I think. Um, and maybe we'll do this last one. It's a little bit of a theory question. Um, do you believe that a movement using similar tactics to the wages for housework movement would be able to be effective at pushing for a complete rethink of work today? Yeah, that's I mean, a, that's um, a for housework, really right? good question. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, I, I love wages for housework, but I think I think the question is like what tactics, right? Because um, we've seen things in some places where you know, the, the return of the women's strike in Poland around abortion law was really interesting, right? Um, that kind of question of sort of mass demands around work is really interesting, right? The, the thing that made the shorter hours movement, the shorter hours demand unifying for the labor movement was that everybody could get behind it regardless of what kind of work you did. And so I think that's an important thing to think about now when like already a labor movement that's that's fragmented by sector and industry um, is just shrinking anyway. We might as well be thinking about what are the big top line demands that would help everyone. Um, and so that's a question, but like, I wish I had more ideas of, of good tactics that would make that work. I would have written that book if I had them. <laughs> if I had the solution. I think one thing that, that's maybe relevant here is, is something that was that you mentioned earlier, Sarah, is, is um, the politics of time and re-radicalizing demands over time. Um, it's not exactly the same as, as wages for housework because that, I guess the, the, the wages for housework kind of framework is is um, it's a concrete demand, but it's also a, trans, a, a way of transforming. It's 
ideology critique as well, right? Like it, it's something concrete, but it's also a way of transforming a general perspective about work. Um, and I wonder if time is is another kind of thing which has that that characteristic in which you can say, okay, here's a really tangible demand. Here's something you can talk about. It's quite concrete, but it makes people think about actually. What do I do with my time? Who controls my time? When is my time free? What would it mean for my time to be really free? So I wonder if there's a similar character there. I mean, I do think that some of those tactics um, around wages for housework, which show that kind of, in some ways, the double character of housework and social reproduction care, which is that it's done. There are moments in it which are kind of um, genuine, loving, caring, but there's also ex exploitation, the burden of it, and unfair distribution. Some of that stuff does appear in some of the contemporary um, wage and unwage action in in, social, in the socially reproductive elements of work. So a teacher strike is a big one, right? Where they are able to use the ideas of care and caring for the kids and, and community in a way which is effective. And it goes against the, you know, the, the papers being like, you don't care about the kids. And like, actually, you know, we do, you don't. So I think those legacies can still be seen in those, um, struggles within the social reproductive kind of element of, of the economy today. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a way that you can kind of connect these two questions. And, and one thing that I've been, um, one thing that I think is is a big thing that, that a lot that the union movement and, you know, socialist strategy in general has like needs to grapple with is this idea that a lot of the categories that have been taken for granted as kind of stable categories are becoming very unstable categories like again like work like what work is so you know before it was like work is what I did when I went to my workplace um and that's kind of and that's not to say that that's always what work has been but that's generally the unit around which unions have organized their strategy um it's what I do from this hour to this hour now you know for a lot of people, your work is in your home and it's in your phone and it's, you know, it, that kind of presence bleed has happened. Um, categories around what count, so what counts as working time, what is work, what is the workplace and also the worker. Um, that comes from, you know, people not being workers, but being entrepreneurs, being their own boss, being whatever. And I think that those, you know, those categories are very are becoming very unstable but for a lot of people they have always been unstable you know that kind of job that thing we talk about about you know one at one point work was you know um the the sort of fordist model where you went to work and you your workplace was like a circumscribed space that's a model of work that has only ever existed for a very tiny group of people in a very specific historically specific time and so i think the good thing that we have is that we're not starting from scratch. You know, feminist scholarship, disability studies scholarship, these are all um, movements and scholarships that have dealt with this question of what it means to be considered valuable and not valuable, productive and not productive, worthy and unworthy, and what are productive and unproductive ways to spend your time. Um, and I, so I think that more crossover between that scholarship that, you know, and the scholarship on work is really necessary now because now those categories are unstable for all of us. Um, so I think that that's something that we're going to have to really grapple with, that not everyone considers themselves a worker. And even those who do, do not consider themselves as a worker in one thing or for one company, 
workspace is very, very difficult to define for a lot of people. And so is working time. So all of these categories are very difficult now. And so we need to really think about what what our strategy can be now that those have are kind of dissipating. Um, great. I mean, Sarah, any any last um, kind of thoughts or, or comments before we wrap up? Yes, that's my last words. The book about work won't love you back, but other people will. And this is, <laughs> this is these are my people and I miss your faces. Thank you so much. Thank you All for doing great. this. Um, and thank you to Amelia um, and Dahlia um, and to the World Transform for this. Um, thank you so much, guys. Have a good night. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank Bye -bye. you so much. Bye, everyone.